Coming to you from the greatest city in the world, this is the number one showbiz podcast. It's Talk for Two. Here's your host, Matt Bailey. Thank you, Gary. And as always, thank you to our season sponsors, Axtel Expressions and the Tangent Bound Network. Find fantastic podcasts at tangentboundnetwork.com and all your entertainment needs are at axtel.com. Welcome, everybody, to day three of Classic Country Week. Appropriately, today we welcome three guests in two interviews. Gary Burr and Georgia Middleman are incredibly accomplished songwriters and have composed hits for Keith Urban, Garth Brooks, and more stars. And Jeannie Seeley is a Grammy-winning Opry legend who joins us to chat about a new album on which she interprets songs she wrote that were hits for other artists. So we got a songwriting theme going today. I had the chance to sit down with Gary Burr and Georgia Middleman backstage at their Nashville to New York Songwriter Showcase. They were open and honest with me about what it takes to be a writer in Nashville and how you break in when you first get to town. Through their many years as successful composers on their own, this married couple decided to showcase the best writers in country music to the New York set by turning Manhattan's The Cutting Room into a cafe akin to The Bluebird. Three to four times a year, country's creative forces come to the Big Apple and share music, stories, and more. On this particular night, pop icon Kenny Rogers and hitmaker Jeffrey Steele happen to be on the roster. The latter also joins in for a story. Here now to tell us how Keith Urban gave her the opportunity for comfort through releasing one of her songs as a single, our interview with Georgia Middleman, Gary Burr, and special appearance by Jeffrey Steele. Georgia Middleman, Gary Burr, welcome. Thank Hi. you so much for doing this. I, I, welcoming you, but you're welcoming Welcome to our, what, lair? A bull chapeau. <laughs> How'd you guys pick the cutting room for... Uh, you know what? They reached out to us and asked if we wanted to play here, and we came by and loved it. It was so beautiful and a good vibe. Yeah, I did a show here backing up somebody for a CD release party. And uh, when it was over, the owner said that we should play here sometime. And we filed it away, and then after a, a, a year or so, they actually reached out to us, and we said, absolutely. We, we wanted to start our own songwriter night here. Yeah, you know, we knew a lot of people that had writer nights and things, and we thought that'd be kind of a, a fun little thing to bring our friends up to New York. And yeah, we've got some amazingly talented friends in Nashville. Spread the love around. So, so yeah, started this cutting room is great. Yeah, yeah it's you, awesome. You certainly do, because while this might be my first uh, go around here with you guys, I have certainly am aware of the roster that you guys bring up here. I mean, yeah. people that have done some amazing stuff. <laughs> We, is, is it as small in Nashville, the community of songwriters, as, as you might imagine, or smaller than you think? It's as small as you imagine. It's as small as you as you hope that it would be from what you think of it when you think of the songwriting community. But of course, when you're new in town, I was an aspiring writer from Texas, and when I moved to Nashville, it looks impossible. And you think, how do you find these, how do you get to meet these amazing people? And then as you get into the business, it's all about relationships, and so-and-so introduces you to so-and-so, and then you guys get a cut together, and suddenly you meet everybody, and it is pretty small. Yeah, it's getting bigger because of the TV show. Every, you know, we're getting a big influx of, of uh, you know, not only regular civilians, but a lot more writers hitting town, and, and uh, it's getting to where you don't know everybody anymore. You mentioned the TV show, and I'm addicted to it. I mean, that, mm -hmm. that was my, every, every Wednesday night I had to be watching Nashville. Um, what do you guys think of the representation of songwriters on Nashville? I hear that it's 
very authentic, but I want to hear from the horse's mouth what you think of, of how they portray. I thought when it started out, it was so right on the nose, and then as it got to be, um, as it as it got known, it started drifting more into dramatic arcs, and it wasn't so true to exactly how it works in the business because there was just there was murder involved all of a sudden and sleeping with everybody. That's not quite what happened. Then it got. <laughs> then it got things that aren't true about Nashville. Right. Too. right. <laughs> no, uh, it, what do you think, Gary? Well, you know what it is? It, it, you know, the first year it was written by someone who lived in Nashville and was in the business. She was in the scene, yeah. You know, Kelly knew everything about Nashville. You know, like I, I, I was talking to somebody that works at the show and, you know, sometimes they'll have something very unrealistic where, you know, one of the one of the actors who's a, pretending to write would say, well, I'm going tomorrow and I'm going to... I'm gonna uh, sell some songs to Carrie Underwood, and, and you know I said, you know, it doesn't work like that. He goes, yeah, but the people in the middle America, they're not gonna understand it if you say, right. uh, my A and R guy has a pitch meeting with right. They don't need to guy. know. And they don't understand <laughs> that, so it's easier to write it down where they get it and go, no, I'm going to sell a song to right. Carrie Underwood because that's what that's how they that's how people not in the industry sometimes thinks it is. Well, let's <laughs> mention selling songs. Let's talk about the first time individually that you both ever sold a song. I'm, I'm so curious what that moment is. It feels so like uh, the first time you sold a song. You mean published or got on the radio? Whatever it means to you. Like to me, I had this really life-changing moment. I was playing guitar for a friend of mine. She was auditioning for Capitol Records. And I was playing guitar for her. and. And I was sitting there, and I had, I had had a song recorded by Keith Urban, and he had gone four singles deep in his album. So I figured, oh, my song won't be a single, because they usually go four deep, and that's about it. And while I was sitting there, we were, I was setting up my guitar, getting ready to play. And right, oh, oh. Look at this. Hi, guys. Great seeing you. Hey, Jeffrey, we're doing an audio interview. You can say hello. That's one of our buddies, You're Jeffrey welcome, Steele. Welcome. I don't care. That's uh, Jeffrey Steele, ladies and gentlemen. Jeffrey Steele, ladies and gentlemen. Jeffrey Steele, ladies and gentlemen. I was sitting there and um, the head of Capitol said, Georgia, did you know you have the next single on Keith Urban? And I went, what? And I had no idea and it changed everything. Wow. And that was really cool. What song was that? I'm In oh, wow. by Keith Urban. That's really, really cool. <laughs> Thanks. How did it change everything? It just did everything. <laughs> <laughs> My car was breaking down. I could afford a new car. Um, I, I guess the biggest thing it changed was I started saying no to things because I used to do everything because I didn't think I had a had the right to say no to anything because I need. I was hustling out there, and it gave me a moment to relax just for a minute because I made enough money to go. Okay, and, but I didn't stop. That's when you get really going, right? And you can't stop what you're doing. But it changed everything, and that I started having a little more control over my life in terms of my decisions. Um, for me, it was pretty dramatic. I mean, I was I was an electrician up in Connecticut writing songs at night, and uh, I finally wrote one that. Somebody uh, down in Nashville liked because we were sending tapes of them out every week. And somebody in Nashville heard this song and they called me up and they said that uh, it was going to get recorded. And I was, and the next thing I know, they called me up and they say it's going to be a single on the radio. And they told me who it was and it was very exciting. And, and, and you know, the first time I heard it on the radio, I had to call the radio station and asked them to play it for me and they didn't believe that I was who I said I was and finally the DJ played me the song 
and, uh, and they spelled my name wrong on the label. <laughs> but um, it, 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 once again, it changed everything. I was married with two kids, you know, making about 270 bucks a week as an electrician, crawling through attics. And I was able to quit and be a full-time songwriter and a stay-at-home dad. And, and uh, it just, out of the blue, a phone call. So somebody from Nashville wants to talk to you. What was the song? Who was the artist? It was, uh, it was Juice Newton, and it was a song called Love's Been a Little Bit Hard on Me. Oh, wow. And it was 1946. <laughs> no, 19, <laughs> it was 1982. It's it like, was, wait, that math isn't right. That's <laughs> yeah, a long time ago, but uh, it was a shock. It was yeah, Everything changed. The math, yeah. I want to ask you about one so song, because I don't know if you know this, but I'm sporting my Garth. Um, <laughs> I don't get this line nice. of clothing, and I am like, I have to wear it tonight. One Night a Day, um, which if you remember on the TV special, he played the sax yeah. on that. Where did that, I know that was a co-write, but where did that uh, come from for you, and how did you manage to get that in, into his hand? I'll tell you, it's actually an interesting story. I've only written two songs on the piano, and that was the first song I ever wrote on the piano. And I wrote the first verse of it. And that was as far as I got, and I had that for about a year and a half, and I could never finish it. And finally, I got together with Pete Wozner, and he and I finished the song. And Pete Wozner was a writer signed to Alan Reynolds' publishing company, and Alan Reynolds was Garth's producer. So we did a demo, and the demo over the course of the life of, of putting it in the files and everything was being played often in the office. And Garth was in and out of the office. And he really liked that song. And when it was playing, he'd stop and he'd listen and go, oh, man, it's a great song. I'd love to cut that someday. Okay, everybody says that. Did he have a record deal? It never yet? happened. Yeah, he was Garth. And um, he was Garth with a capital G. <laughs> so, and this is the, the, this is the legend of it, is they had the session ready to go. They, were, they had their songs ready to go. And the last song on the session was supposed to be a Bob Seeker song that he was going to do a cover of. And something happened to the fax machine and because they, they were waiting to get the lyrics faxed to them. And the lyrics never came through the fax machine. So he had the band sitting in the room. They were sitting around. No lyrics. Couldn't do the song. So he said, why don't we do that song that I keep hearing in the other room? And they, they brought it in, taught it to the band, and they cut it. And I don't know if that's true. But it makes a great story, because that's the way I heard it. All I know for a fact is that they never caught me with the pliers outside the building cutting the wires of the fax machine. So, <laughs> yeah. That that's they know good. of. That's good. Now, I know you, you walked in, Jeffrey, but can I ask you a question? Sure. One of my favorite songs is yours. I'll even turn this around. Um, if you don't mind me doing OK. Now. We'll take a quick nap. <laughs> I've heard all these stories. I am most curious because your your lovely wife Steph was telling me about a little bit about the origin story of Leanne Rhymes' Big Deal. So if you could talk about writing that, and I know I know she mentioned it was kind of inspired by your girls and and uh, where that came from. Yeah, one of, one of my youngest daughters would always say that. She'd always say, "Big deal, shut up. Big deal, shut up." She's like ten. You know, and, and um, I, I was on a songwriting trip to Connecticut. I was when Big Al was living up in Connecticut. Um, How desperate do songwriters have to I know. <laughs> That's right. For inspiration. I'm just kidding. Connecticut's a lovely place. <laughs> Try stay near you. Don't listen. 
And, and I, I took a trip up for a week, and, and we sat around and we wrote probably about 20 songs in a week's time. And the last thing... That's probably in two days. Yeah, no, yeah. Al was like notorious for like starting tons of songs in a day, you know, and so we'd mm -hmm. finish them as we go. And the last day, I remember we were sitting around talking, and I was like, I somehow got into kids, and I was like, well, my daughter always is always saying, big deal, shut up, big deal, shut up. And, and Al started playing some chords, and, and uh, just rolled off my tongue. I said, Look, let's make a song to that, you know? Big deal, so what, shut up, and just, you know, it just turned into that. And, and that was probably the last song we wrote that day, and probably the worst one we wrote that day. Oh, come on. I, it was catchy. It was great. What was your daughter's reaction? Oh, well, my daughter, she, they laughed. You know, all my kids laughed about it at the time. Cause, uh, Did she want a, a piece? She's, I don't ever say that. I said, you say it every five <laughs> seconds you say that. Yeah. Of course she wanted a piece. Was my town around the same time? No, that was a few years later. That was right, right after... Um, Right after 9/11. Uh, oh wow! And it was it was it was about New York City. I, w I was in Durango, Colorado, playing at a festival, and with uh, Reed Nielsen, late Reed Nielsen, great songwriter, and um, we we were out there speaking at a conference and and playing at a show. Mm -hmm. And 9/11 had just happened. It was October, so like a month after it happened, and we were just kind of I was talking about driving in the rental car out to Durango, Colorado, and how everything was like a was like a water tower and a Church, a white church, and, and everything was the same in every town, and we were just kind of talking about that and laughing about it, and like, who lives in these places? Like, who lives in these little towns, you know? And someone, somewhere along the line, someone said, you know, well, it's their town, you know? And, and that kind of spawned into, like, a thought. Mm -hmm. And then we were just, we were watching the coverage on, you know, on TV about the whole 9-11 thing was still going on, still fresh in everybody's mind, and, and I, I was just kind of amazed at how everybody in New York City kind of became a small town like all the all the boroughs came together everybody was helping each other and it, it the thought got a little bit bigger and and then i just rem i remember the exact moment I, I took out my guitar and i was tuning it up i was tuning up my guitar playing this little riff just tuning it and, and reed looked at me and he said he goes he goes play that in time one one time like what do you mean he goes just play that thing you're doing tuning your guitar play it in time so i started playing it in time yeah. And all of a sudden we had this background for the lyric, and then it just kind of fell out, you know, it just fell out, and, and um, it was really a tribute to what was happening in the world at that time. That's what I love about, I think, country music more than anything, is that the inspiration can come from anywhere. Anywhere. Yeah. Anywhere, and it, the final product isn't necessarily reflective of what is... Yeah, yeah. Like, I never knew it was about that. So I actually feel like a dip listening to my town in New York City because it's about a small town. And, and it, it, came, it came out of here. Yeah. yeah the, funny, the funny part, too, is we were joking around singing na 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 during it. Yeah. Wow. And I said, we're not putting that in a song, right? And he's <laughs> like, like, no, we're definitely putting this in a song. This is going to make people listen to the lyric. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So I learned a lot about songwriting that day, too. Now, I wanted to ask you guys, this is for everybody, anybody who wants to... Um, who wants to answer this? I think we're talking about a very specific, I don't know, I'm not too familiar with Keith's work, I know he came a little later in the 90s. We're talking about a very specific time frame of, of country music and of, of writing. What, has it changed so much? It doesn't seem like the emphasis is on songwriters so much anymore. It's it's seems, it, it seems cyclical, and I feel like right now we've got a lot of um, 
a lot of rapping in country music and beats. Like mm -hmm. that seems to be, it seems more electronic now. And then it goes back traditional and it gets poppy. What is, what is your experience with that, Gary? Well, I just think that when country videos started to come out, mm -hmm. the powers that be said, well, these would be, these would sell the most records if the people in the videos were young and attractive. Mm -hmm. So maybe we should start signing people that are young and attractive. And then the younger the demographic of the artist, the younger the writer has to be in order to write things that sound appropriate coming out of the artist's mouth. Mm -hmm. So then the writer gets younger. Right now we're in an era where there's a lot of young writers in town that basically grew up on hip-hop. Mm -hmm. And so they want their country music to reflect that. They want the lyric to be fast, a lot of words, a lot of memorization, a lot of rhythm, a lot of loops, because that's the music they grew up listening to. Mm -hmm. And um, I don't know where it goes from here. I don't know if the, if the genie goes back in the bottle and, and country music. I mean, there'll have to be some sort of break off of that into its own genre and then country music can be fiddles and fiddle steels again. You know, I keep uh, hoping that everybody at that door can kind of But uh, <laughs> Sorry. No, you're fine. I love this this, this openness here. I'll tell you it's a it's a it's a normal green room, dressing room. People come and people go and people get ready to do the show. People order food so they don't get blood, low blood sugar and play all their songs too slow. You're right. I, uh, I, it's, um, I had a question, and I asked, um, oh yeah, I want to talk more about why it's important to give these songwriters the spotlight that you do, and why do you come up to New York to do it? <laughs> yeah, by the way, our show's called Nashville to New York, that's yes. the name of the show, and we bring hit songwriters from Nashville to New York. I, I just feel like a, the song is the heart of what we do, and it's a way to honor songwriters. Like I grew up, when I went to Nashville from Texas, I grew up and I, I listened to all these amazing songs and I was so intrigued by the craft of it. And then when I got to Nashville, people, they sit in rounds and they tell stories, like you just heard from Jeffrey or Gary, what, what, happened, what inspired that song. And people really wanna know and you get to hear from the creator's mouth. And we love that tradition, so we wanted to bring it to New York City. And there's a lot of people love country music here in New York City, and we thought this is the great place to do it. And we kind of thought if we had a show in a great venue with a great crowd that we could build up, then just about any writer would want to come up to New York to do it. No one's going to pass up a chance to fly to New York and do a good show in a great club. Right. And then that would allow us to ask writers that we may not necessarily ever get to work with. There are people out there that we idolize, that we think are just drop-dead genius that we've never played with. So it's sort of like, if you build it, they will come. We built it, and that lets us bring up the Roger Cooks and the Mike Reeds and the, and the, and the Tom Douglases and the people that ordinarily we may not even cross paths with but for a night, they'll come up to New York and yeah. play a good show in front of a great crowd. And we get to say, listen to this. It doesn't get better than this. And this is what is the heart and soul of Nashville. It doesn't. I don't want to be reductive of any other genre. And I don't want to 
overly romanticized country, but it seems like we live in a world where the other genres care less about the authenticity and more about the formula. Okay. And what's so funny, like you were talking about Mike Reed, he wrote I Can't Make You Love Me with Alan Shamblin, and that was a huge pop song. It wasn't even a huge hit, I don't think, but it's a classic now with Bonnie Raitt. Yeah. And it's like, that's the beauty of a great song. You can put it in any genre and it'll stand on its own legs. Mm -hmm. And you can put any production around it. Gary's had hits with Christina Aguilera, Ricky, Ricky Martin. It's just a great song can be produced any number of ways. And that's the other thing, when we bring these, we call them Nashville writers, but a lot of them are writing LA pop songs and, and these hits all over the country, all over the world. Yeah, sure. great writers can write anything. Yeah. And we love to be able to bring them up and, and show, you know, show New York and say, look at this, look at this. This is like Paris in the 30s. We're storytellers. We want to tell stories and we want to hear the stories from our idols. So we bring them up if, they'll, if they're willing to come. Yeah. That is excellent. Well, we're about five minutes over time because I really have fun talking with you. we got to get up there. got to get to Missy. Thank you, Matt. Thank you. You're really, welcome. This is excellent. I, I, I'm like a kid in a candy shop uh, here. And, uh, by the way, oh, we didn't do this. Uh, Kenny Loggins. Kenny here. Loggins is, is a surprise guest tonight. Uh, he he heard we were doing Nashville in New York. And he said, I'm going to be in New York City. Can I come? We're like, of course you can come. You want to come out and sing? And he said, he said, yeah, and, and we said, do you want to do one song? He said, can I be one of the songwriters? And so we were like, yeah. So instead of two featured songwriters tonight, we're going to feature three. Oh, that's awesome. Kenny Loggins, Jeffrey Steele, and Tony Hazelden. Well, that's awesome. We have a whole, I have a whole backlog of stuff that I know we can talk about. So welcome. Please come back. We'd love and, to. Uh, Absolutely. This, this was, was lovely. This was fun. Thank Thanks, you so Matt. Much. You bet. Thanks, everyone, for a great laid-back interview. It was such a thrill to get to chat with you. This was this was so fun to be there and, and to witness it that night after our interview. To find out more about Nashville to New York, go to georgiamiddleman.com. You can find that link in the show notes on talkfor2.com. And while you're at it, and while we're in between guests, go follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. We're so easy to find, uh, and we'll talk more about our socials at the end of the show. But right now, it is on to our next guest. The incomparable Jeannie Seeley is a member of a generation that pioneered, really blew open doors for women in country music. And I am so proud to welcome this Grammy winner and Grand Ole Opry member to the program. Her biggest hit, Don't Touch Me, written by her then-husband, would prove to be one of the most important songs of its genre and its day. Told from the point of view of a forlorn lover, the song spoke of sexual desire in a way that, while it might seem tame today, was quite explicit in 1966. Celie's rendition, at once heartbreaking and steamy, is credited with liberating country music's females, allowing them to sing more openly about what it means to be a woman. In addition to her own hit recording career, Seely is a prolific songwriter, and her work has been made famous by a variety of other voices. Now, for the first time, Seely is putting her voice to those hits with her album, Written in Song. She approached this album, she says, with the intent to put her own spin on these classics as if she had recorded them herself first. An accompanying DVD of live performances from a listening party is also available on her website. Jeannie continues to perform and is a staple at the Grand Ole Opry. I myself saw her on that very stage two summers ago at the Opry House. So uh, that was such an honor. And uh, here now I finally get to talk to her to tell us how her Pennsylvania upbringing woo, woo, led her to Nashville. Our interview with Ms. Jeannie Seeley. Jeannie Seeley, welcome to Talk for Two. How are you today? 
I am doing wonderful, Matt. How about you? I'm great, and I, I realize we have something in common. We are both native Pennsylvanians, and that's both very important to both of us. Um, Absolutely. <laughs> I'm so curious how a Pennsylvania native got introduced to country music. Oh, my goodness. Um, I listened to the Grand Ole Opry. My mother told that I found WSM on the old uh, radio when I was four years old and couldn't understand why every time it was turned on, I couldn't hear the Grand Ole Opry. And you know what? I still feel that way. <laughs> <laughs> that is wonderful. And you now, my, uh, you know, back in the country where I grew up, a lot of times people picture Pennsylvania as Philadelphia, but there's a whole lot of country in Pennsylvania, as you know. Absolutely. And uh, so I grew up, uh, our little farm bordered the Pennsylvania State Game Reserve land. So uh, there was miles of wilderness beyond our little farm. But, um, you know, most everybody had somebody in the family or neighborhood that, picked and sang, and so that's how we passed the time. That's wonderful. Who who in your family picked and sang? Um, my dad uh, played the, the tenor banjo. He went back to the 20s and the Ain't She Sweet era, that kind of thing, mm -hmm. but he also called square dances, kind of taught me to, to do that, and my mom had a beautiful voice. She used to love to sing all the show tunes in the 40s band music to me growing up. And, uh, and of course, when we listened to the Grand Ole Opry, we heard Mr. Acuff and Ernest Tubb was a big influence. Of course, I was a child during World War II, so um, that's my early remembrances. Was it an immediate dream to be on the Grand Ole Opry listening to it? Did you just say, one day I want to be on that stage, or did you think it was nothing... It could be attained because it was... Well, yeah, that was a dream in the back of my mind. But truly, I thought, uh, you know, that's just too much to even dream for. When I got out of school and worked a couple of years, I went to California. And uh, that's actually where I got started professionally, although I did do radio from the time I was 11 mm -hmm. and worked with the dance band in Pennsylvania. But... Everybody said it's a great hobby. You just can't make a living doing that. <laughs> so uh, when I got to California, I realized there were a lot of people making a living doing that. So mm. that's where I really got the confidence to to try like everybody else. You know, you didn't feel alone out there because there were so many people trying to do that. And, of course, one of the greatest blessings was when I met Dottie West, mm -hmm. when she came out there to work the Palomino Club, and also when I met Hank Cochran, when he came out to do the television show that we were all doing out there. I'm curious. I, I read that Dottie was one of the people that encouraged you to move to Nashville. What did she say? What was the conversation? And, and what happened within you and, and that conversation to say, I'm going to move to Tennessee? What was the deciding factor? Well, Dottie kept talking about, you know, this being absolutely the heart and soul of country music, if you will, even though there was a lot going on the West Coast. Of course, Dottie was 
prejudice to Tennessee. She was from here. And, uh, but we hit it off the very first night we met. It was just like we knew we just had so much in common. We just truly liked each other immediately. So that was part of it. But, um, also, Hank Cochran, when mm-hmm. I met Hank, he was saying he would try to help me, too. But he said, you've got to move to Nashville because he said, I can't work with you out here. And he said, people need to know you're serious mm-hmm. about it. And if you're not willing to pack up and move and take the chance, and people aren't willing to take the chance on you, all of it made so much sense. And I tell people that now, and they'll say, you know, they want to try, but they're afraid to move here. But anyway, I told Dottie, I said, Dottie, I don't know enough yet to move to Nashville. And she said, Jeannie, that's where you learn. And so that made sense, too. So between all of them urging me and then, I was, I recorded for Challenge Records, and um, they flew me back to Nashville to do that first session here in during the disc jockey convention in 1964. Mm-hmm. And I loved it so much. And of course, the next year, I didn't have the challenge contract any longer. And so I had enough money to get to Nashville, but not to go home. So it only made sense for me to move here. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> That's, that was the biggest deciding factor. <laughs> and, uh, and Hank Cochran, uh, I believe, wrote your biggest hit, Don't Touch Me. Um, I'm curious, what drew you to this song? Did he write it for you? And it's such a, it's a country song, but it's lyrically, it's so different and so beautiful and it, it fits you so well. What, what was it like to record it and and what drew you to the song? Well, um, Hank had taken me to, uh, Monument Records to Fred Foster and Fred said, y'all find me that song because it all starts with the song. You've got to have a good song. And he said, we'll record. So we were listening to song after song. And of course, Hank was right and funny. He said, what do you, what do you want? What are you looking for? And I said, well, I'd love for it to be a ballad. I know that's the hard thing to do to start a career with a ballad. They always told me, but I would like that. And I'd like it to be a song that would appeal to everybody. It wouldn't matter whether you were married or single, male, female, young, old. It wouldn't matter. It would apply to everybody. And, of course, that was a pretty tall order. But Hank was there. I was in Rochester, New York, with traveling with Porter Wagner. And uh, Hank was in Indianapolis with a bunch of guys. I don't know what they were doing. Hard to tell. Mm-hmm. But he had this, somebody said something, and he had this idea, and he wrote the first verse, and he called me, and he said, what do you think? And I said, yes, I love it. Just the very opening your hand is like a torch each time you touch me, you know. But then, but don't do this if you're not serious about it, you know. Yeah. And I thought that was such a strong opening and message. So Hank flew to Rochester and um, back then, you can get a flight in 30 minutes and go if you want to, you know. We, we like can today. do that today. <laughs> but anyway, he flew to Rochester, and he actually finished writing the song in my dressing room at the auditorium there. 
but he was getting pretty heavy into the start. By the time we got to the bridge, I was he couldn't hold the guitar, so I was playing the guitar as bad as I play. <laughs> well, we finished it out, you know, and the next day he called my room and said, I think I wrote a smash last night. Tell me you remember it. And I said, oh, yeah, I remember it. So it really was written for me. That is that is so cool. Do you ever get tired of singing it in concert? I know you still tour. Uh, you still no, do dates. No, I don't. I don't get tired of singing that. And I feel so fortunate because I can't even imagine some of the gimmick songs or songs that are not this strong, you know, and have this effect on you. I watch it night after night, mm-hmm. uh, the effect it has on the audience. And you can tell, you know, you're reaching people. So, no, I feel very fortunate to have had this this greatest song to build a career on and to still be enjoying singing it 51 years later. That is wonderful. And, well, you are a wonderful songwriter in your own right, and, in fact, your most recent album, Written in Song, that features, and again, correct me if I'm wrong, I always like to double-check, but that features songs you wrote for other artists and you're finally getting down to uh, to singing them. What uh, what made you decide to put that project together? What what was the inspiration to, to do this record? Well, it was actually at the urging of Betty Stubbs, WSM and Grand Ole Opry announcer, he mentioned to me quite often, he said, you've written so many songs that all these other artists have recorded. And he said, I'm curious to how you would do them yourself. Mm-hmm. So um, that, he said, I wish you'd go in and record an album of it. So, you know, that's kind of a good thing, too, man, about being at this age and in, in my life and my career you don't have to, and with technology today, we don't have to ask somebody else to do something. We can do what we want to do, and that's a freedom that I'm really enjoying. So I, I'm very blessed that every weekend I get to work with some of the greatest musicians, special musicians, here at the Opry every weekend. And uh, so that's what I did. I record the old school way. I like everybody in there and uh, all of us inspiring each other. So uh, that's how we did it. And it was kind of fun because as I bring up another song for the musicians, they were like, I didn't know you wrote this. (laughs) (laughs) So it was a fun project as well. Uh, and we've done something else, you know. I did a CD release party for this, which I'd never done before. Hmm. Did it at Third and Lindsay here in town, which is a great listening room, got wonderful facility and sound. And uh, I didn't want, I didn't charge a cover charge because I wanted it to be a party and a celebration. And I did put out a box just a voluntary donation for the Grand Ole Opry Trust Fund, which helps so many musicians. And we were able to raise $1,200 for the, almost $1,200 for the Opry Trust Fund. So that's another thing I'm proud of. But I went ahead and videotaped that. I had a friend videotape it. It's got a little production company here. Just for us, for a keepsake, 
and so many of the people around here, fans close by, said, well, we want a copy of it, too. So we did a test pressing on this. We've uh, we've got it on the website, too, to see if anybody would want the DVD. It's not perfect, but it was a party. Oh, well, I'm sure everything about it is perfect because you have a perfect voice and and you're so wonderful with your songwriting. And and I'm a fan. I saw you two years ago, actually, almost to the day because it was June uh, on the Grand Ole Opry, June 17th, 2015. Uh And, um, you know, I I listen to you all the time. And and, uh, I think country music is is really timeless. I think you're, you're proof of that. And I'm curious, this will be the last thing I ask you, then we'll let you go. How does it feel knowing I think you were the third country music female artist to win a Grammy, um, knowing that you helped pave the way for the Carries and the Mirandas and the, the Casey's and the Kelsey's. What do you think when you look at the new generation of, of female country artists coming up today? Well, I appreciate you saying that I paved the way. I did, I think I did push some boundaries Yeah. that opened the way for, uh, Females. One of the things I'm very proud of is uh, that I kept hammering on the door until I convinced them at the Opry to allow female artists to host. Mm-hmm. You know, for years, women were not allowed to host a portion on the Opry, and that just seemed so wrong to me. Yeah. But it, I, every every manner do we had, I set up a meeting and discussed it with them and really got nowhere until Bob Whitaker took over as manager. Of course, Bob had come in from managing Opryland Park, so he was used to those production shows where everyone had a microphone, everyone had a part mm-hmm. and a, a speaking role, so to speak. And so he he didn't even realize it, and he said, well, this is kind of crazy. And he said, why? And I said, well, they call it tradition." But I call it discrimination. <laughs> so he said, well, let me think about it. And finally he said, okay, Seely, I'm going to throw you out there. But he said, you better do your homework and be able to do the job or you and I are both in trouble. <laughs> and so I do. I still, I, I do my homework every week before I host that show and know who and what I'm talking about when I get out there. And uh, so I, I knew that if I didn't do it, uh, the door would not only be closed on me, but it would be closed on every female coming behind me. And it's just, it's incredible for me to watch Lori Morgan and Pam Tillis walking out there and carrying on this torch. And, of course, the Grand Ole Opry is so special to me. Yeah. And it's just a way of life. And I... The worst thing I could imagine is something happened to the Grand Ole Opry in my era. So I feel good about that. The Grammy Award is very special because it's voted on by your peers and it's yeah. on your performance. So that makes it very, very special. Well, you are very, very special. Jeannie Seeley, thank you so very much for your time. I thank you for giving me the opportunity, and let me just say happy safe holiday to everybody. Thank you. You too. Enjoy the fourth. Mm-hmm. Bye-bye now.
Jeannie Seely. What a pleasure and privilege it was to chat with you. I hope I get to see you again next time I visit Nashville. For those interested in her new album, click the link below on talkfor2.com or visit JeannieSeely.com. That's J-E-N-N-I-E-S-E-E-L-Y.com. That's it for us today. Thanks again to our season sponsors, Axtel Expressions and the Tangent Bound Network. Stay tuned to talkfor2.com as well as Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram for more from the number one performing arts podcast. Reach out by emailing talkfor2cast at gmail.com and talk about us on social media using hashtag talkfor2. Signing off, I'm Matt Bailey, reminding everyone out there to keep talking for two. You can hear more show business interviews with the stars at talkfor2.com. <laughs>